Well, we're gathered this evening to remember, again, to rejoice and to reflect on the birth of Jesus and all that it means for us. And so this evening we're reading from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there or it'll be projected on the screens above. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Hear now God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there is no place for them in the inn. Amen. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are humbled, um, but they are humbled um, into the rest and the peace knowing that Christ has come that the king was born a child and that as he lived among us, he lived the perfect life we couldn't live and died the death that we should have died. Help us this evening to remember you, to reflect on you, to rest in you and to rejoice in you. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Oh, well, this evening's service and tonight's meditation is a uh, short and simple one, but the message, of course, of Christmas and the message we read today in Luke is certainly grand and glorious. Uh, and so as we look at this story this evening, I'm going to do something I haven't done in a very long time. Uh, I'm going to give you two points. Um, it's a Christmas miracle. Um, but here are the two things, very simple things I'd like to reflect with you on. First is the sovereign God. And second is the humble Savior. And so let's look at this first thing together. First, the sovereign God. Now, imagine this. Imagine an alien came down to this earth. He or she observed humanity for an entire month, the entire month of December. Even without a Bible, I would venture to guess that this alien could gather significant facts about the birth of Christ. From the Christmas songs that are playing all around everywhere, uh, and this year seemed that they started playing as early as right after Halloween, any alien could gather that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that Jesus was born in a manger, that Jesus' parents were named Joseph and Mary. Uh, but without the Bible, there are some things that an alien wouldn't know. For example, he or she wouldn't know that Caesar Augustus was emperor in Rome uh, and that more locally, Qu uh, Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And that's because no Christmas song mentions these facts. And so that makes us wonder and ask, why does Luke mention them? Why does Luke record these details that don't seem to be very relevant? Well, the first thing is because Luke is grounding the birth of Jesus in history. 
Luke is saying, hey, this is no fairy tale. This is no myth. This is no uh, legend or tall tale. This actually happened, and this is when it happened. If you don't believe me, because he's writing to an ancient audience, if you don't believe me, look at the records. This was clearly going on at the time. But secondly, and more importantly, what Luke is doing by naming all of these figures, these historical figures, is he's actually showing us the sheer magnitude of God and showing us the power and the majesty of his sovereignty. Now, what do I mean by that and how does he do that? Well, we read at the beginning of this service uh, from Micah chapter 5. And in Micah 5, we heard a prophecy that was given hundreds of years earlier. And this is what Micah 5 said in verse 2. It said, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. You see, God had chosen Bethlehem to be the town in which the Savior of the world would be born. And so then we read in verses 4 and 6 of our passage today, and Joseph, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, we just assume all of this, but really think about it for a second. Joseph and Mary are both from the town of Nazareth which is in the district of Galilee, which is up north. And so the question is, why are these northerners down south? Why are they in Bethlehem anyway? And so verse one gives us the background of this, wherein it says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. You see, Joseph and Mary weren't in Bethlehem by choice, but by Caesar Augustus's decree. Because Caesar was requiring, he was decreeing that all in his empire should be registered so that he could properly tax them, right? You want to know how many people there are in your kingdom so that you know how much money to expect. And so, yes, taxes even existed back then. The IRS is ancient, the Imperial Roman service. Um, But in order to get Joseph and Mary out of their town in Nazareth and into Bethlehem in order to fulfill the promise and prophecy of Micah 5, God was using Caesar and Quirinius like little pawns in his game of chess. And he was using them to do his will. Because think about it. You have a couple, Mary and Joseph up north in Nazareth, And you need to get them down to Bethlehem. There could have been an easier way for God to fulfill the prophecy of Micah 5, isn't there? In Luke chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel first showed up and appeared to Joseph and Mary, he told them that Mary would give birth to a son to name him Jesus and that he would be the son of the Most High. And so it could have have been and it would have been much easier if at that time Gabriel also said, and by the way, This birth needs to be in accordance with the prophecy in Micah 5. And so Mary, once you're about eight months pregnant, why don't you head down to Bethlehem so that you're comfortable, you can have a room, you can make sure you have a room at the end, and then you can give birth and all of the prophecy would be fulfilled. That would have been much easier. That would have guaranteed Micah 5 came true. Or it could have been, in fact, much more easier, much more efficient if God chose a young virgin who was from Bethlehem. Why even risk it? Why even take the chance that this prophecy is not fulfilled? Why didn't God just choose a young virgin from the town of Bethlehem? 
And yet that's not the route that God chose to take. What did God do instead? He laid out the most roundabout, complicated, intricate course of events. But this isn't because God didn't have the foresight or the wisdom to know better. It was because God was demonstrating his sovereign power over empires and over history and over our salvation. You see, let's return back to verses one and two. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, Luke is going to add in this little detail. He's going to say, all the world should be registered. Now, of course, that doesn't literally mean all of the world. That's Luke using uh, exaggeration in order to talk about all of the inhabited land where, you know, there was Roman influence and Roman uh, governance, all, basically all of the, the known world that was under Roman rule. And so the reason Luke tells you that all of the world was required to make this registration was to show you how big the Roman Empire was. As far as anybody was concerned, Rome was the entire world. And Luke does this to highlight for us the power of Caesar Augustus and the expanse of his decree. Everybody listened to him. Everybody obeyed. So verse 3 says, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph and Mary was included in this. And yet... There was one that even Caesar Augustus had to obey. Because when everybody in the known world was following Caesar's decree, Caesar was following God's decree. Consider it. God fulfilled the prophecy that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem, not by telling Joseph and Mary to head over to that town in advance, which would have been much easier. God didn't fulfill the prophecy in uh, Micah 5 by choosing another couple uh, already residents of, of, of Bethlehem. We named them Broseph and Carrie. God sovereignly raised up the Roman Empire at this moment in time. He set this emperor on the throne. He used this decree under this local governor. Also that little Joseph and Mary, teenagers from nowhere Nazareth, would have a reason to be a hundred miles away from their hometown when she was nine months pregnant in order to give birth to a baby who they would name Jesus, who would take away the sins of the world. You see, Luke is telling the story in this way because he wants you to step back and be humbled and amazed at the sheer magnitude of God's sovereignty and what he is orchestrating and ordaining in history using nations and using emperors in order to bring about the birth of Jesus, the good news to the world. You see, this Christmas, maybe in this season of life, some of you need to sit back and you need to remember God's sovereignty. You need to rest in it. You know, for many, if not for all of us, there has never been a year quite like this year, a year that we wanted to end so badly. And so as this year comes to an end, we dare not think that 2020 somehow fell out of God's hand, that, that this year was like that bar of slippery soap that God somehow tried to grasp and it just fell out of his hands. No. God is sovereign, even over 2020. But here's the thing. To Joseph and Mary, their experience, their circumstances, none of that felt like sovereignty. 
to them it felt, felt a lot more like suffering. What do I mean? Consider Mary. Put yourself in her shoes. You are a virgin. You're betrothed to be married. And one day, an angel shows up and gives you mind-blowing news. You are going to give birth. She says, but I'm not married. Well, you're giving birth. Well, that's insane. Will you let me finish? You're giving birth to God. Okay. So a few months go by, and now you're beginning to show signs of pregnancy, but you're not yet married. And people are starting to look at you funny because they know you and they know your family and they know the guy you're supposed to marry and they know his family. And you're from a small town, Nazareth. It wasn't big, maybe a couple hundred people. And so everybody is talking. She, is she gaining weight or is something else happening? And, and I don't think so. And they're checking their calendar. Did we miss the wedding? Was it nine months ago? Why is she showing? And the only way that you can correct their assumptions about you is, no, 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 no. I say, no, 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 no. Please don't get the wrong idea. It's not his. I'm still a virgin. God put this baby in me. Would you believe her? Because her hometown is going with a much more plausible explanation. She did something she shouldn't have done. And so finally, you're nine months pregnant. This baby is going to come out soon. You're scared out of your mind. You're young. You're not married. This is all new. Everybody's talking behind your back. And as you're getting ready to deliver this baby, you receive the decree from Caesar. You need to register in your hometown. Now, you're currently in Nazareth, but you need to travel to Bethlehem, which is 100 miles away but you're nine months pregnant. And in order to make that journey, it's one of two ways. One, you walk, but you have trouble. You have feet problems, your feet hurt, your back hurt, even, even just standing. How are you going to walk? Or two, you ride a donkey. But that journey is long and windy and bumpy. I mean, maybe you're going to hit one of those bumps and the baby's going to come right out on the side of the road. What do you do? So you travel, and you're pregnant, and you're scared, and you're far from home, and apart from family, and in a city you're unfamiliar with. And then to top it off, you arrive in the city, and there's no room for you at the end. The only room available is a stable or a stall. What are you thinking? This is the perfect ending to an already imperfect Year. Why would I expect any different? You see, if this happened to you, if you were in Mary's shoes, you would not be thinking, oh, this must be God's sovereign hand at work, bringing me to the city of promise so that scripture can be fulfilled. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. You're thinking, are you kidding me? And you're probably adding some adjectives before kidding me. You're thinking, why now? Why God? You're not interpreting it as sovereignty. You're interpreting it as suffering. You see, you got to understand, it's easy for us because we're reading about the story to see God's sovereignty in it, but you're experiencing it as suffering. And maybe that's true for some of you in this room. The reality is that suffering, when it comes into our lives, it blocks out, it obscures our vision of God's sovereign hand at work around us. 
But faith is not trusting when you can see his sovereignty at work. Faith is trusting that God is at work when all you see is suffering. So maybe this Christmas you need this reminder. Yes, you need the reminder of the baby born, but you need the reminder of the sovereign God. Because the presence of your suffering does not mean the absence of God's sovereignty. And the presence of God's sovereignty does not guarantee the absence of your suffering. As the birth of Christ teaches us, God sovereignly works all things, including your suffering, ultimately for the good of your salvation. The God of Christmas is the sovereign God. And the second thing that we see and that I want to reflect with you on is the humble Savior. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You see, because Joseph and Mary had no place to go, they end up in a stable. And historians most likely believe that that was probably a cave. And so there in that cave, without the normal comforts every woman deserves and needs for giving birth, Jesus is born. He is wrapped in swaddling cloths, that detail saying that, that he was actually born a baby. He was placed in a manger. And that all makes you wonder in light of the first point, because the very first point is there is a sovereign God at work who's moving nations and emperors and empires and using the decrees of, of even Caesar himself to execute his own decree. You have the sovereign God and you think, couldn't the sovereign God sovereignly arrange one room at the end? Surely he could have done that. The God who raises nations and plays chess with emperors. Surely the sovereign God could have delayed one other couple. Surely this God could have ordained a traffic jam, you know, on I Jericho. <laughs> one camel, you know, overturned. He could have delayed just, just two minutes so that Mary and, and Joseph could get there before and guarantee a room. And yet the sovereign God who decrees even the decrees of emperors decides that his one and only son, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the Prince of Peace would be born in the lowliest of manners. That Jesus would come to us as a humble savior. Why? Because the humility of his birth would also characterize the humility of his life and of his death. Because the one who was born in a cave would end up being buried in a cave. You see, do you have eyes to see this evening the humble Savior and does it bring forth praise? Because they're wrapped in swaddling cloths. Jesus is not placed in a bed lined with fine linen and silk, but he's laid in a manger, an animal's feeding trough, covered in scratchy, itchy straw. Here is the humble Savior come to save us. And you zoom out of that manger, and here lay this baby under the night stars, in a stable, in the company of beasts who are mooing and baying. Not under the roof of a royal palace in a room filled with servants ready to do his building. And here is the humble Savior come to save us. And you zoom out of that 
and you see shepherds traveling, but they're not traveling to see Jesus in Rome or Antioch or Alexandria or any of the prominent major cities at the time. They're headed to this small, insignificant town of Bethlehem. They had no idea where it was. They had to follow a star, a town so insignificant, Mike would call it too little to be among the clans of Judah. And in the middle of nowhere, here the humble Savior is born. And you zoom out once more. And Jesus is not born uh, part of a mighty and powerful empire like Babylon or Egypt or Syria or Persia or Greece. He's born in Israel. A small nation constantly attacked, constantly defeated, constantly exiled as it sat amidst history's greatest superpowers, always at war, always in a rivalry, in little Israel caught in the middle. And to that nation, the humble Savior has come to save. You see, in every circumstance of his birth, Jesus displayed great humility. But the greatest display of his humility is in this. He was born. That's it. He was born. You see, Jesus is not just a promised one from the line of David. He certainly is, but he is the promised one from ancient days. Meaning Jesus is the eternal one. Jesus is God come in the flesh. God come as baby. Emmanuel, God come to be with us. And so he doesn't just come to us as the earthly Davidic king, but he condescends to us as the heavenly divine king. Majesty comes to us in a manger. The Christ comes to us as a child. David Cassidy writes, on countless occasions, history has witnessed a baby become a king. Only once, however, has a king become a baby. You see, he came to us on a mission. And at his very birth, the tone was set for how the rest of his life would be lived. Jesus' rejection at the inn was just a foreshadow of the pattern of his life, a life lived in rejection, a life lived without a place to lay his head. So Jesus himself would say in Luke 9, 58, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, the humble savior came to earth as an exile so that he could bring us who were exiles back to our true home. That Jesus left heaven and was displaced for us so that we could find our place back into heaven. He came to find the lost, to forgive the sinner, to liberate the enslaved, to reconcile the enemy back to the Father. See, Jesus left home so that you could be brought home. Jesus was born so you could be born again. Jesus cried so that one day your tears would be wiped dry. He lived to die so that when you die, you can finally live. You see, dear friends, when we say Merry Christmas, it's not Merry because of the absence of sorrows or the absence of struggles or the absence of suffering. It's Merry because in those things, we have the presence of a sovereign God a humble savior 
who is ours by promise and by covenant. So this Christmas season, whether through smiles and celebration or through tears and trials, we remember, we rejoice, and we rest in our God. Let us pray.